There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. The cost of living crisis highlighting the long-running failure to insulate UK homes. A new housing minister who voted against forcing landlords to deliver dwellings fit for human habitation. Architect and campaigner Kate McIntosh picked for Open City's Thornton Lecture. And Dutch architects MVRDV explain what really caused the Marble Arch Mound debacle. My name is Merlin Fulcher, I'm an architectural journalist, and I'll be bringing you a roundup of this week's top London architecture news. Welcome to the Lundown. My guest this week is Sadie Morgan. Sadie is founding director of Sterling Prize winning architecture practice DRMM and a board member of Homes England. Welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm really, uh, really pleased to be here. Really looking forward to the conversation. Households across the UK are plunging into poverty due to soaring energy prices and a domestic infrastructure crisis caused by a decades-long failure to insulate the country's ageing housing stock. This is a story that's been covered in The Independent, Guardian and BBC News. Residents of poorly insulated British housing are facing a record 54% energy increase bill from April, as the energy regulator Ofgem lifted the price cap on default tariffs to nearly £2,000. Caused by rising fuel prices around the world, this crisis has been compounded by the fact the UK has some of the least energy efficient housing in Europe. In fact, UK domestic infrastructure has been so woeful that even before energy price increases, around 2.5 million families in the UK were suffering from fuel poverty due to poor housing conditions. This is a failure taking place in a highly advanced economy that exports housing design around the world that cost the NHS £1.4 billion a year treating cold and other bad housing-related ailments. Now, a fresh report conducted by pollsters YouGov shows that a whopping one in three Londoners are struggling to pay their household bills, and a further 70% are anxious about the increase in costs of living to come. And to compound this issue further, the Bank of England has also warned that UK households must brace themselves for the biggest annual fall in their standard of living since comparable records began 30 years ago. Commenting on the perilous outlook for everyone living in the capital, London Mayor Sadiq Khan said, quote, It cannot be right that millions are living in poverty and that so many people are struggling to get by each month. He said, As Mayor, I'm doing all I can to support Londoners, but this is a national problem and the government needs to urgently step up and support people through this cost of living crisis. Meanwhile, the government's levelling up white paper, overseen by Housing Secretary Michael Gove, has outlined plans to reinvigorate overlooked and undervalued communities across the UK. 
Covered in the AJ, the document has already been criticised for failing to address the climate crisis, having a lack of focus on retrofit and for ignoring calls to insulate homes. Simon McWhirter of the UK Green Building Council said the white paper is a missed opportunity to tackle the scourge of poor housing. He said a major national home retrofit programme is urgently required to insulate Britain's left-behind areas from soaring gas prices and to create tens of thousands of green jobs exactly where they're most needed. The white paper has also been singled out for ignoring problems faced within the capital, with Aditya Chakrabarti in The Guardian commenting, quote, almost as many Londoners live in poverty as would make up the entire population of the North East. So, Sadie, what's this all about? It seems a big reason UK bills are so high is because of poor insulation across the nation, which is forcing citizens to use a lot of energy to heat their homes. It's like filling a leaky bucket. As fast as consumers pump heat in, it drains away through poorly insulated walls, roofs and windows. Um... As a commissioner for the National Infrastructure Commission and obviously a Homes England board member, what do you think needs to be done to address the bad insulation crisis? I mean, look, it is, it's an extraordinary sort of uh, coming together of uh, a, a huge number of issues, I think, that have, have left us where we are. And, 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 you know, a sort of perfect storm, as they say. And, and you know, the leaky home syndrome is definitely one of those, one of the sort of contributing factors. But, but before I sort of pick up on that, I'd just like to talk about the sort of long-termism, because really this is, you know, it's the resilience of our housing stock. It's the resilience of our infrastructure that I think we really need to sort of address. And what we're not doing well enough and haven't done, as you rightly pointed out in your introduction, is to take the long-term view. And one of the things that the National... The reason the National Infrastructure Commission was set up was to try to help take these long-term views, take the politics out of... Um, the decision making and to try to help think about where the priorities are. Um, the, the sort of focus, if you like, on new homes and uh, and it's the same with new infrastructure, I think is a, is a cultural issue. And we need to remind ourselves actually that we don't have to keep building more and more and more. What we have to do is make the existing more efficient. And, and I think what we need to do is encourage through offering support uh, to um, to, those, to those of us who need to insulate our homes better to be able to afford to do so. And also just picking up quickly on that, that cultural point that you made. I mean, if you walk around London, you can see that a lot of people investing huge amounts of money in restoring their homes, putting fancy kitchens in, uh, but not insulating them, you know, not putting in double glazing, not externally or internally insulating the buildings. I mean, why are we in this situation where people, when they do have a bit of cash, would rather spend it on adding another bedroom and increasing the property value than actually doing that kind of smart long term improvement uh, that would that would really help? That's because having an extra bedroom or a smart interior uh, is seen as as a, an investment that adds value, and uh, and and that's where the point is. The minute, uh, for example, mortgage. Uh, suppliers start to say, actually, we're going to not look at the, the the sort of price point of your home. We're going to look at how efficient it is because we think the the affordability of that mortgage is related to the actual whole costs of where you live. We'll start to change the mindset. We need to be thinking about making investment now. Uh, which helps us afford our heating bills or pay no bills, ideally, you know, a, a, over a longer period. But but that's not something that is, it's not something we're naturally good at. Um, um, I mean, government are definitely not naturally good at it. And, um, and I think consumers are, um, no one wants to spend money on stuff no one's going to see. It's very difficult to persuade um, even one's own self to, you know, to make that investment 
um, in order that, you know, pay, pay X thousand pounds now and over the next 10 years you might claw it back. You know, there's, it's a sort of, um, it, it's, a, it's a hard sell and people don't often have that huge sum of money at the beginning to be able to afford to do that. And that's where, you know, that's where government needs to perhaps step in and help. You are listening to the 51st episode of Lundown. Yes, we've been broadcasting for more than a year. Um, thank you for supporting the Lundown by listening, subscribing and sharing the show. Uh, Lundown's produced by Open City and the London Society. Open City is a charity best known for Open House Festival, but also for our tours, education programmes and events. Um, the show, along with the festival and schools programme, are free because we believe everyone should have access to the tools and resources to learn about and experience our built environment. Uh, to keep this show free for everyone, we rely on those of you who can afford it to donate the equivalent of one coffee per month. Uh, if this is you, please go to open-city.org.uk forward slash flat white to donate and help keep these conversations accessible, inclusive and honest. Boris Johnson has appointed the 11th housing minister in 12 years, replacing Christopher Pincher with Stuart Andrew in the latest government reshuffle. This has been reported in the AJ and Daily Mirror. The former deputy chief whip takes on the role two years after Pincher was drafted in, following the departure of Esther McVeigh, who lasted seven months in the role and briefly made headlines with a speech about 3D architects on computers. Andrew, who does not have a background in housing or architecture or built environment advocacy, voted to reject a proposed amendment to the Housing and Planning Bill requiring private landlords to make their homes fit for human habitation in 2016. Andrew's arrival means 18 different MPs have now held the position, the housing position, since the start of the millennium. Uh, This is a period in which housing has become increasingly unaffordable for many, and especially so in London. Uh, On his constituency website, Andrew has vowed to save our green and opposes plans by Leeds City Council to build 70,000 houses around the city in the next 16 years. Of course, it's nothing like having a housing minister who is against new housing in the middle of a deepening housing crisis. Uh, The Minister for Housing's duties include overseeing planning reform, the affordable housing programme and the government's design and build better drive. This appointment comes as a new report reveals that new housing developments on greenfield, rural or suburban sites, which make up a sizable proportion of new housing stock, are becoming increasingly reliant on car ownership. The report finds that these new developments are adding thousands of new extra car journeys to the UK's roads as essential services such as shops, schools and doctor surgeries are inaccessible by bike or by foot. It's almost as if the urban renaissance never happened. Um, So Sadie, what's this all about? Uh, What does it say about the government's attitudes towards housing, uh, that housing ministers change so often? Uh, and that also someone who's voted against safe living conditions is now in charge of delivering housing to a country in the middle of a housing crisis. Well, the answer is I, I don't necessarily have an answer to all of these things. Uh, you know, it isn't great that you have uh, ever-changing housing ministers. You know, consistency, I think, is something that um, all uh, departments uh, need. It, it does, of course, have a new Secretary of State, which I think is um, also also very uh, interesting in terms of the sort of push from, I think, number 10, um, and in particular, the, to sort of um, shape up the department and give it, give it sort of real gravitas. So I think in the sort of bigger picture piece, uh, rather than sort of necessarily talking about different ministers, you have a you have an agency that really is got setting itself up to li- deliver not just on housing but on the on the leveling up agenda. Um, we are, I think, we do suffer from uh, not being clever enough about how we how and where. 
uh, we think about delivering our new homes. And I think it is get, making sure that we have the tie up between the infrastructure investment and the housing investment that will help to sort of unlock the bigger issues about the car based uh, you know, only accessible to cars. And I think we have to work incredibly hard to have much bigger and more, you know, kind of strategic for, for cities, uh, for um, towns and cities to have, um, you know, really well thought through strategic plans that tie in uh, not just transport infrastructure, digital infrastructure, but the soft infrastructure, you know, a lot of reasons why people are, uh, anti-building um, uh, on, on or near their towns is actually because it's the infrastructure that suffers. You know, it's like, oh, we're going to have more congested roads. Oh, we're going to, we're not going to be able to get to the hospital or our schools are going to be filled up. You know, it's a sort of, there's a bigger picture piece that I think means that we have to be better coordinated and we have to have better and, and longer lasting strategic plans. Part of the job of an MP is to sort of represent the voices which aren't in the room. Yeah, they're they're there to sort of give power to those people who who don't have a, a place in government or can't lobby it and can't um, directly influence those decisions. And it, yeah, the MPs doing that job have always been changing, and yet a lot of the companies and the other sort of big forces. Uh, planning land value etc those haven't changed the whole time but the mps have and you know does it rather feel like you know potentially there's a sort of bit missing bit of the jigsaw puzzle that's somewhat been left out of um the debate shaping housing delivery at the highest level um for decades now well i think you know you could argue that it's it's ministers who you're right you know they should be representing you know their constituents but actually what we need to do is open up the process so that people who, who you say don't have a voice have you know are able to have uh, much more input in their in their local environment in their local plans so um, one of the things I haven't yet talked about is the Quality of Life Foundation that was set up a couple of years ago. Um, and uh, we've been doing a huge amount of work on uh, sort of um, optimising and, and making community consultation inclusive. So we've done, we're doing a, um, a, a massive piece of research across the nation at the moment where we're asking local communities what it is about their existing uh, environment that improves their quality of life uh, against set against the uh, quality of life framework that, that we uh, published I think just over a year ago now and w what we're wanting to do is is to give that voice to give that sort of agency sense of control to local people to say what it is about their environment that as I said, improves their quality of life and then have that feed into local plans or when developers come along rather than, um, you know, say, well, you know, through our section 106s and through, you know, our, our um, uh, the sort of leverage that, that we we are in terms of money that we need to we need to put forward for local communities and so forth, that they are spending it on the right, you know, on the things that matter. So I think it's about a lot of this is how do we give that level of control to local people to actually have um, proper, meaningful input right at the beginning of the process? Not when somebody says, Here, here's my plan, do you like it? No, that's not, you know, that's, we, we need to start before then.
And it was, I think it's really interesting coming at it from that quality of life perspective, because obviously, uh, if you imagine one of these new developments, the ability to walk to where you need to be or to cycle to where you would need to be, as opposed to having to drive and go on a road, potentially a dangerous road, and that potentially limits you, the freedom of you and the people in your family. Um, you know, it seems like a no-brainer. Obviously, that's a, that's a better quality of life, but obviously it doesn't always um, follow through to the end results. But there's also another whole thing, which is to do with like home ownership. I mean, home ownership is sort of described as being like a better quality of life, but um, it's not attainable for everybody. Um, it's not necessarily wanted uh, by everybody. And the funny thing is, every time your home goes up in value, um, it means that you've got a bigger asset, but it doesn't necessarily make you any happier or doesn't necessarily directly improve uh, the quality of your life. It just means you've got more to lose if something happens to that asset that you feel is very important to you. Now, what's very interesting is that this week, uh, the TV personality Kirsty Allsop weighed in on this home ownership debate. Uh, speaking to the Sunday Times, Allsop, who purchased her first home at 21 with family help, she said it enraged her when people claim they can't afford to buy a home, uh, referencing Netflix, gym memberships and coffees out as reasons why people couldn't find the money for a deposit. Um, now, Twitter audiences were quick to point out the disparity between the average house price increase versus the increase in the average wage uh, in the UK. But I'm thinking, Sadie, why are we still stuck in this kind of infuriating conversation, especially when it comes to home ownership and access to it? Um, rather than the excuse that young people spend too much money on avocados, what are the real causes of this? widening gap I, I just you know when you when you talked about that I was thinking gosh if I was Kirsty Ilsop and you say something like that I bet she's just you know can't forgive herself for saying such a kind of stupid thing for me it's about stability it's it's about feeling safe and secure and if, if that means you have your own home um and or you rent somewhere where you know that the landlord's not going to throw you out or where you can afford you feel like you can actually afford to live that's really what improves your quality of life and you're talking to somebody who was bought up in a commune by her grandfather you know I, my grandfather set a commune up I didn't own, I haven't owned anything till I was <laughs> till two years ago when I was 50 years old so um when it comes to home home ownership I was very late late on the ladder and I can tell you it's extremely um expensive <laughs> And um, people often say to me, Sadie, you're, you know, why have you got five jobs? And I'm like, you should see the size of my mortgage. Um, uh, it's, you know, and it, it's, it's a, it's a very real thing. And, you know, to, to sort of pick up your point, you know, I, I was very lucky. I lived in a, uh, I lived and rented uh, my family home uh, for over many years. And I, I never had the, I, I mean, I, I, it was an affordable rent uh, and one that I could afford. But I knew that if I wasn't able to pay one or two months, I wasn't going to get thrown out. That is what I call quality of life because I, I felt safe and secure. Um, and, I, and I think that that, uh, however that is achievable, whether that's through home, you know, home ownership for those who feel that they want to own their home or to have affordable uh, rented property that is, you know, is available to all and gives us, you know, a sense of the long term. Kate McIntosh, the public sector architect famous for designing the iconic Dawson's Heights in East Dulwich and the grade two listed McIntosh Court in Streatham, will deliver Open City's annual Thornton Lecture. Tickets will be available from the Open City website for the landmark talk at Earth in Dalston on the evening of Wednesday the 7th of April. McIntosh, a prolific housing activist whose work has been championed in Open City tours and models and who also won the 2021 Jane Drew Prize for Architecture awarded by the Architectural Review, will 
tell the story of her work delivering public sector housing and the challenges facing those at the forefront of housing delivery today. The announcement comes as Brixton's iconic International House, a landmark office tower designed by the acclaimed London architect George Finch, uh, the life and business partner of Kate McIntosh, has been saved from demolition and now looks set for a retrofit. This is a story that's been covered by hyper-local blog Brixton Buzz and on the local authority-owned website Love Lambeth. Uh, the news follows the appointment of Bermondsey-based London Square as development partner for the town centre site, which also includes the famous Brixton Wreck uh, that was also designed by George Finch and is also set to remain. Uh, the deal will see London Square deliver 240 new homes on the plot, of which 80 will be council dwellings. Uh, the 12-storey international house, which currently provides affordable shared workspace, will remain as part of the development. The move marks an about turn for the council, which back in 2012 intended to demolish International House, igniting a passionate campaign to preserve the building led by Macintosh herself. Meanwhile, nearby in the borough, a partial development of a post-war housing estate has been controversially approved by Lambeth Council. This was a story covered by MSN. Uh, Cressingham Gardens, an estate designed by the acclaimed London architect Ted Hollenby in the late 1960s, now faces the bulldozer after plans were approved to replace 12 of the original homes with 20 new flats. Uh, This is not the first time the South London estate has faced demolition. Uh, Back in 2012, Lambeth Council announced its intention to demolish all 306 existing homes on the estate and replace them with 464 new builds. Uh, Since then, Crescom Gardens residents, again with the support of the ever-campaigning Macintosh, have brought three legal challenges against Lambeth Council. Uh, Despite these challenges and Macintosh's efforts, the council has now approved proposals by leading London architects Conran and Partners to demolish 12 homes on Roper's Walk marking the latest twist in what was one of the very first stories we discussed on London one year ago. Um, So Sadie, I'm sure you've heard loads about Kate McIntosh and especially more in recent years thanks to this renewed focus on her work by Open City and also publishers such as Architectural Review. Um, What is the significance of inviting a long-standing housing campaigner, uh, somebody who designed iconic social housing developments but stood outside the establishment and the architectural canon to deliver the prestigious Thornton Lecture? Well, I mean, you're quite right. What an extraordinary woman and what, what an extraordinary legacy she has. And I, I can't wait uh, personally to, uh, to, to listen to her lecture. Um, w- one thing that I've, I've always find uh, really sort of positive about inviting people who, who bring an outside perspective is that they, you know, they often talk in a way that is much more inclusive. I think architects generally are um, are very poor at articulating the bigger picture. Um, we are taught to sort of do architects speak and uh, most of the time, I don't really understand it at all. You know, I, I, when I when I go and critique uh, schools of architecture, I'm kind of like, can you repeat that, please? I don't understand when I'm looking at a pile of spaghetti on the wall. Um, uh, so I think that um, being able to articulate an argument uh, so succinctly and clearly as she does, uh, backed up by a sort of lifelong, you know, sort of, work that sort of proves you know kind of proves the point is um is a kind of show and tell that you really you know you can't get better and yeah and on that point open city does actually do um public speaking training for architects and built environment professionals so just just get out there um it looks like the campaigners have succeeded in saving international house from demolition but also 
campaigners have also failed in a long-running bid to protect Cressingham Gardens. Um, you know, why is it that a town centre office tower is being kept while a parkside social housing scheme is lost? Um, or is this sort of difference in outcome? Is it all to do with when certain crucial council decisions have been made and the changing context, which means that demolition is so much more unacceptable a route to go down now? Culturally, we are changing slowly, you know, as a, as a nation to understand that, you know, um, as we talked right at the beginning of the podcast, you know, building new, new, new isn't always the way to go. And uh, as been articulated uh, so very well recently, you know, retrofitting is uh, is something that is seen as, as a positive. Now, it tends to be, I have to say, retrofitting um, of those bigger, more iconic buildings that tend to get, you know, tend to sort of capture the imagination of local residents. Um, when it comes to sort of social housing, you know, kind of 60s built, you know, it, it, they don't, they, they, other than the people who live there and are, are have that sort of level of, of, of a sort of attachment, it, you know, there is a kind of harder uh, point, point to make, especially when it's numbers driven, you know, if you're saying, well, we're going to replace 12 with 46 or whatever, Whatever the numbers are, you know, there's a, it's it's a balancing act, um, you know, sort of continually trying to work out um, uh, the cost, not just in financial cost, but the cost to the environment, the cost to the climate of, of you know, of re- replacing these homes rather than retrofitting them. And obviously, because that's the, the sort of classic thing is that councils are, well, they often say they're between a rock and a hard place when it comes to making decisions like this. I mean, is there a sort of cut through on that drive to broaden out the numbers game? I mean, do you think real, real change will happen very soon that will make, make, make it a lot easier for councils to sort of do the right thing and retrofit rather than demolish? I think it'll come. I don't, I can't, you know, timelines, all these things should happen much sooner than they inevitably do. You know, every recommendation that the National Infrastructure Commission makes uh, is, you know, generally on a tighter timeline than than actually happens, even when recommendations and most of them are uh, accepted and acted upon. So, um, you know, kind of getting the motions, get, get, getting government to move quicker and faster is is uh, is a sort of age old issue. But the only way we're going to be able to manage these sort of big ticket issues and to hit our legally bind legally binding targets is uh, is to legislate and to and to do so quickly. And when we do legislate we're going to find a lot of people sort of running to catch up. So convincing those to to sort of move quicker, show leadership at this moment in time is, is what I spend a lot of time doing, I think. But you're right, if you're a strapped cashed local council, it's very difficult to put your money where your mouth is. The Marble Arch Mound has graced architecture headlines for all the wrong reasons since its inception last spring. Now its designers, the Dutch practice MVRDV, have spoken out for the first time via a blog post on their official practice website, and it's been reported in the AJ. MVRDV said it had been systematically excluded on the project, and that it had never received an adequate explanation for the inexplicable budget increase from one5 to £5 million to £6 million. It went on to say that it, it had, quote, rarely seen such a loveless execution of its designs. 
Meanwhile, Westminster City Council responded saying how happy it was with the now partially dismounted mound and that it successfully helped to revive consumer footfall. In the candid account of the problems befalling the widely ridiculed project, MVRDV admitted that it, quote, should not have worked for a fee so low that it allowed the client to sidestep the usual procedures. Um, This was basically a loss-making £10,000 fee, which equated to just 0.8% of the original budget. Um, According to the blog post, problems began right at the start of the scheme when a decision was made by the council to ditch its initial designs for a semi-open 25-metre-tall slope over the marble arch itself, instead opting for a plot with a smaller footprint, steeper slopes and a lower peak. Uh, The practice also claimed it was increasingly ignored by the council who pushed them out of the construction process while an apparent lack of communication meant quote many details concerning the mound's construction were decided without our involvement. In October, an internal review carried out by Westminster City Council found a lack of effective government's grip and oversight with the procurement of the mound. Responding to MVRD's comments, Westminster City Council said, We are grateful to MVRDV for their designs and the hard work that they put into the mound project. We are pleased that with their support, the mound has done what it was built to do, draw crowds and support recovery in the West End. Um, It went on to say that MVRDV's unique creative concept helped to ensure that more than 250,000 visitors came to Westminster, with many spending money in shops, bars and restaurants across the area. Um, Sadie, uh, this has been a much talked about story over the past year. Um, What do you think went wrong here? Is this a fairly typical outcome that happens a lot with design and build culture in the UK or a perfect storm of unusual circumstances? I'm embarrassed to say I didn't actually get to see the mound. <laughs> Can you believe it? I know, I know. You know, you, you're, you you pick up on a number of sort of big, big issues, don't you? A, you know, architects need to be paid properly for a start. Um, uh, but we are, uh, I often feel, you know, it, it, we're sort of um, agents of our own downfall. You know, I mean, I think that we we are we have to take ourselves much more seriously in terms of making sure that we are we don't sort of compete to the bottom. And uh, I mean, this goes with this goes with a sort of how we procure things in you know in general. And I think if we force people to to go to lowest price, and we're not um, you know we're not asking people to bid on you know sort of quality output and making sure that they have the opportunity in this instance probably to have some kind of design guardianship so i think there's sort of this whole way in which we procure um our uh, public work you know is is one of the big issues here and like one of the things that's interesting reading mvrdv's statement is they seem to sort of say you know, we did these things, we made these mistakes, but it was worth it because our idea itself, our concept, our vision was so strong and so kind of beneficial to London. Um, but I mean, I remember even before it was built, there was quite a lot of cynicism and criticism of this concept. I mean, it was pretty contentious in the original renders. I think they were February or March 2021. Um, I mean, was it really a sort of genius uh, thing? I mean, and obviously these are really trendy architects, really well world renowned for their work. Um you know, is is this really up to their kind of standard, um, or or was it just doomed from the start? And do you think they can bounce back after after this 
this uh, story? Uh, oh, well, the answer is yes, it definitely bounced back. I mean, they're an extraordinary practice who do and deliver incredible projects around the world. Um, you know, I would agree with you. It's not, it wasn't a high point, was it, in their career? I mean, I think it's probably one, you know, uh, uh, obviously you'll always defend whatever work you do. But um, the difficulty is when you when you try to do something extraordinary, and and the execution is 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 um, is lacking. Then you do set yourself up to fail quite significantly. Sadie, it's been an immense pleasure to feature you on London uh, this week. Uh, how can our listeners keep up to speed on your projects and your work? Is there a social media they should be looking at or somewhere else? Well, I tell you what. If anything, I'd love I'd love them to uh, look up Quality of Life Foundation and to help and support us in any way you can because we are trying really hard to encourage the construction. Uh, industry to improve people's quality of life through really simple practical measures and uh, I'd encourage everybody to uh, help us uh, think about how to do that. Merlin, I, what I really want to know though is what you're what you're up to and if there's anything that I need to be listening to and thinking about. Well, thank you for li- thank you for asking. I mean, obviously, the big ticket item this week it's all about Kate McIntosh's Thornton lecture. It's going to be happening on the evening of Wednesday, the seventh of April. Tickets will be available on our website. Uh, we're really excited about that. But we've also just launched the first part of a new Open City film series exploring the impact of Marxist theory on spaces and communities around London. This is put together by Poppy Waring, the amazing producer of of, of the London that you're listening to right now, and the film series and its entire entirety will feature four key buildings uh, you can find about all about that on our homepage. Um, plus we have three yes three new job opportunities uh, for people to come and work for us um, those are currently open for applications and it's for a open house festival community support manager uh, an open house festival headline partnerships manager and an education and empowerment program coordinator um, and of course finally we have lots of tickets available for our year-round range of exciting walking and cycling tours uh, details for all of these are on our website um sadie thank you again for being on the show and i hope you can join us again in the future i look forward to it thank you you've been listening to the London, a show from open city rounding up the big stories in architecture and the built environment each week in london if you've enjoyed the show and want to know more about any of the stories we've discussed we recommend subscribing to the architect's journal which has covered all these issues and many more too. You can find the show on Twitter or Instagram at at OpenCityLondon or by using the hashtag London, L-N-D-D-W-N. Open City receives no public funding, so if you want to support our work, please go to open-city.org.uk slash support and sign up as an Open City friend. Open City is dedicated to making London a more open, accessible and equitable city. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping 
and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.